Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you so much for being here. My name's Toby, and I'm still an alcoholic. Um, I have a pleasure tonight to introduce someone that I've, I've met before and gotten to talk to some a bit at some other meetings recently, and she has graciously um, accepted the opportunity to tell her story here for us tonight, and she carries with her a crowd, which is surely something that I ex- expected. Um, <laughs> Um, I've heard wonderful things about her. I'm just getting to know her and find out that she's just a wonderful person. Um, she seems to come straight out of the book. She has a, a, an affinity towards this program, which uh, is inspiring. And with that, and not much more, Ms. Jenny. Hello, family. My name is Janine. I am an alcoholic. Hello, I'm recovered today from a seamless hopeless state of mind and body contingent on my maintenance of my spiritual condition. Um, I'm also an addict. I'm a mother. I am a sister. I am a friend. I am an aunt. I am a daughter, and I am a grandmother today. Um, I don't let any of these um, words describe or I just, these labels are not who I am, and today I think that the adjectives that most closely describe the person that I am today is a Christian recovering woman. I would not push my God on anybody, um, it's just part of who I am, and um, I'm grateful to be here tonight. Um, if it was up to me, I would come in here and tell you guys what has happened um, after, but we are, we're told that we're supposed to share what it used to be like, what happened, and what our lives are like today. I love what my life is like today. That's what I get most excited about. Um, But I will qualify myself. Um, It's hard to to briefly tell you my story, but um, I grew up on a dairy farm in upstate New York. Um, The one thing I know for certain about my childhood is that it's over. It's in the past. Um, I am the oldest of five children, and I was adopted when I was nine. So I have a lot of issues from that, abandonment issues, um, all those types of things. I had, did have a great relationship with my adoptive dad, and um, he's still my biggest fan today. He's my number one fan. So that did a lot of great things for me. Um, I did really well in high school. I wasn't the kid that was smoking pot. I never cut class, never once. I don't think I ever had a grade below a B. Um, so I was kind of, I went the other way with it. I was an overachiever, and um, I was daddy's girl, and it was really important to me, especially because I was the only person that was adopted. I always wanted, it was so important to me to make my parents proud of me. Um, so I'm grateful for that because it could have uh, could have been a lot worse. So anyway, um, I got married right out of high school to my high school sweetheart. We moved to Oklahoma. He was in the military. And we had two children, and we got divorced thereafter. The marriage was very abusive. And uh, I didn't want my parents to know what was going on. So I was living in, in Oklahoma. They live in New York. So I kind of just didn't tell them what was going on. And I graduated from high school, but I'd never gone to college. I became a mother when I was 19. Actually, it was two months before I turned 19. So I did the only thing I knew how to do. Um, I'd been dancing my whole life, um, jazz, tap, and ballet. And uh, my parents spent a lot of money and a lot of time um, and I don't think they ever thought that it would turn out the way it did, but I became an adult entertainer. It was the only thing 
that I knew I could do and do well. So that's what I did. And um, I did pretty well for myself. I raised my kids by myself with a restraining order. He had no contact. And um, I danced all over uh, Texas, New Orleans, Las Vegas, all the all the big spots, you know. Um, <clears throat> and I didn't have a drug or alcohol problem. If you would have asked me, if you would have told me that people in that industry use drugs, I would have told you that you were wrong. And I would have absolutely believed that. Um, and when I look back on it now, I, I realize I was probably, people didn't approach me because I was just kind of had that air, you know, that aura about me, like I was a goody-goody. And uh, I, I was kind of leading a double life even then. Before I did drug, drugs and alcohol, I was leading a double life because I was going to church on Sunday. Um, I was cooking for people in our church family who had problems, all that kind of stuff, and then stripping at nighttime. So, you know, <laughs> I had that double life even back then. So, um I met this guy. He was from Tampa. His name's Danny. Um, I absolutely fed o- fell head over heels in lust with Danny. Um, when I first met Danny, I think I-, I can almost tell you what he was thinking when he saw me was because he'd been to prison like six times. He had tattoos everywhere. And I was like, oh, yes, I've got to have him. I can fix him. I know I can fix him. And I, I don't know. I love a challenge, you know. And I just thought I could. That's a, I just I'm attracted to that that sick kind of person so I can fix them. That way I'm needed and I'm nurturing and all that. And I think he probably thought the same thing. Um, he came into my home. I had a custom-built, beautiful 3,000-square-foot uh, home and two kids and a monkey. Um, I had a, <laughs> one of those little organ grinders, a capuchin. And, uh, you know, I had cages and, you know, I just had nice things. And, um, and plus I was going to church, so he probably thought the same thing. He thought, she can save me, you know. <laughs> so uh, we dated for three months. Um, he lived in Tampa, and I lived in Oklahoma, so we dated across country. And three months later, we got married in Las Vegas on New Year's. And uh, it was like Barbie and Ken, you know, there's three million people downtown, and it was it was fun. It was a lot of fun. So he convinced me to sell my house in Oklahoma, and I was oh, totally okay with that because uh, Aaron and Alex's dad, was, he was very abusive. So um, I, I didn't feel really safe living so close to him anyway, so I sold my house, and we moved to Tampa. I bought a five-bedroom house in Carrollwood with an in-ground pool. The kids were happy. And I clearly remember, I can't tell you how long it was. I'm guessing it was about two weeks when I called my dad. And uh, I, I trust my dad. He's got a lot more worldly experience than I do. And I called him and I said, Dad, I, I don't know what to do. Um, Danny's a drug addict. And, like, I really had, I was totally shocked. I had no idea. So <clears throat> my dad said, well, you have two choices, as I can see. You can either accept Danny the way he is. Or you can sell the house, bring the kids to New York, and your mom and I will take care of you. Well, I'd been on my own for quite a while, and I was not dying to go back to upstate New York on the dairy farm. So um, I just wasn't, you know. And so I decided, I think originally my attitude towards Danny was I'm just going to go with the flow. And I really just kind of felt like, you know, my dad was probably right, and I'm just not going to rock the boat. And that did not, it was not fun for very long, watching him get high every single day, climbing over his body when he was, you know, so intoxicated. He was like in a coma, you know. Um, it, it just stopped being fun really fast. So I went from go with the flow to if you can't beat him, join him. So I was 27 and a half years old the first time I used a substance. I was in Ebor City at Club 1509. You know, we were doing the rave scene and all that. Um, and it was really fun, I thought, in the beginning, you know. Um, we would party on the weekends. I was still able to go to work during the week and take care of my two children and pay the bills and all those types of things. So I didn't really see the harm in it. 
and eventually we tried other substances, and um, I remember, I don't want to talk too much about that part of the story, but I found out I was pregnant. So I'm pregnant with our first child, but I have these two older children that are my children, and when I found out I was pregnant, I, I'm going to talk to you about an imaginary line. I can look back on my life, and the doctor said, you're pregnant, and I just said, okay, that's it, we're done, you know, and... Uh, it wasn't like that for Danny, and I was really baffled because I had no idea why he couldn't stop and why I could, and I and I just, um, the marriage became very bad. So there was a period of time where I was constantly begging him, I was bribing him, I was coercing him, I was threatening him, I was, and the more I tried to get Danny to stop, the more he used, and it got to where he was no longer working at all. Um, in fact, he couldn't. Like, when I would go to work at night, he couldn't fix dinner for the kids, give them baths, put them to bed. So I had to pay a high school girl to sit at my house with my very attractive husband, who's using drugs, to take care of my two older children. And I'm stripping pregnant. So it's a very, very bad place. Um, I said a lot of things to Danny that I regret, and I can't take them back. Um, I had every right to be upset, um, but I was, uh, I, I was baffled. So... Um, I'm going to forgive myself for that. Um, on May 17th of 1999, I got up like I did every day during the week, and I fixed breakfast for my children. And uh, my daughter Alex was in second grade, and my son Aaron was in first grade. I walked them to the bus stop. They got on the bus. I walked back to the house. I fixed a plate of food. I walked into the bedroom. Danny's on his back, and he had vomit coming out of his out of his mouth and his nose and a little bit of blood out of his ear. It was not the first time that I'd seen Danny where I actually had resuscitated him a few times, and it's important to me today to be rigorously honest when I share my story. If it's something I don't remember clearly, I just don't share about it. Um, so I do remember that at this point I had given him CPR probably at least four different occasions. Um, and when I saw him, I knew something was really serious. And he'd always made me promise never to call uh, the cops or 911 because he was, you know, he'd been in prison for years. So I called 911 immediately as soon as I saw him. The paramedics were on their way. I got him off the bed. I gave him uh, CPR until the ambulance got there. I did have a pulse on my husband. Um, so the paramedics walk in. I'm about five and a half months pregnant, and I'm quite angry and violent because I want them to save my husband. And... Uh, that's probably why they didn't let me ride in the ambulance. Um, for whatever reason, they thought it wasn't good for me. So I had to ride separately. I get to the hospital. It was the University Community Hospital back then. And I will tell you what I do remember because a lot of it I've blocked out. Um, but they took me into a room, and it had wooden crosses, and, and I'm guessing it was probably a chapel. But on the outside of the door, there was a uh, like this wooden plaque, and, and it said grieving room. And as soon as I saw that plaque, I knew that my husband was dead. Um, I don't know why, but I, I knew. So um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Uh, well, I will tell you this. I, I, am, I was a pregnant widow, and uh, I am 41 years old today. I have never in my life met a pregnant widow. I don't know if you guys have, but it is the most unnatural thing in the world. Um, <clears throat> so I read reports a couple months later that said that um, the paramedics, my, my husband had track marks on his arms, so they did a do not resuscitate. They chose not to resuscitate my husband. They said chronic drug abuser. So um, the cops started coming around. Lucky me, uh, my husband's death was the uh, 15th overdose in Tampa that year, and it was only May. And so a week before my husband passed away, they said the next person that dies of a heroin overdose, we're going to go ahead and use a statute from 1972. 
um, that says if anybody distributed or, um, I can't remember the technical terms, but basically contributed to somebody that died of narcotics, you can be charged with murder. So that was me. Um, the cops started coming around. They started asking me questions. Basically, they wanted to know, uh, I was the only person working. They knew that. Um, unfortunately, I was very honest with them. I, I pretty much, you know, made their case for them, but um, I would not tell them who the drug dealer was. Um, I've had people ask me if I regret that or if I would do it differently. I absolutely would not. I don't know why I did that. I prayed. I did pray when they left the room, when they came back in. I just knew it wasn't the right thing to do. I did meet that man. Uh, I was still using, and this was a couple years after I got out of prison, and uh, his name's Joey, and I'm not going to say his last name, but he lives in Los Angeles, California. He has eight years clean, and he runs a rehab in, in L.A., and is an upstanding member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he had a lot to do with me getting sober. He stayed in touch with my daughter, so I would not uh, do that any differently today. So... Um, I, uh, on July 31st of 1999, my life got drastically, uh, worse. Um, I did not know, uh, I'd never been in trouble before with the law, but I knew exactly what that knock was on my door that shook my house. And, uh, I knew it was, it was 5.59. I remember that. I looked at my clock and, uh, I went to answer the door. I was a little over seven months pregnant, one kid on each leg. And I opened the door and these were guys in suits that they didn't even look like cops. They had suits on and ties. And uh, they said, um, Janine Tillman's, I don't care, it doesn't matter to me, um, you can read about it. Janine Tillman's, you have been subpoenaed by a grand jury in the state of Florida. They didn't have a warrant, you guys. <laughs> I had a subpoena by a grand jury in the state of Florida for first-degree felony murder. So uh, I was pregnant. I was arrested for murder in front of my kids. And uh, I was on the front page of the Tampa Tribune. Um, St. Pete Times did a couple stories. Um Every every time I was in jail and they turned the news on, I was the lead story. Um, it was pretty, like, crazy. Um, it felt very not real. And uh, anyway, so I'm in jail for first-degree murder, which is an unbondable charge and a very serious, very serious charge, especially because they had a, the subpoena by a grand jury. That was a pretty big deal. So um, I went into labor on September 26th of 1999. Um I gave birth to my daughter with uh, shackles, like cuffs with each on each of my ankles with my legs spread on a gurney. And there was a classroom of medical students that had never seen a live birth. And so there was over 20 of them, and they, the, uh, they allowed them to watch me give birth to my child without my permission, without my consent. Uh, my daughter, um, I'm so glad, glad I didn't know I would only have 48 hours with her. Um, I don't know how I would have handled that, but um, I did have 48 hours with her, and I remember I remember nursing her and talking to her, and I only had one thing that I could give my daughter, and that was her name. That was the only thing I had. So um, we knew she was a girl before my husband passed away, and um, Anyway, I named my daughter Danny. Um, he wanted to name her Danielle, but I wanted to make sure that someday when somebody asked her, is, your, is that a nickname for Danielle, that she would say no. I was named after my father. He passed away before I was born. It was the only thing I could give her. So Danny Victoria is going to turn four, 14 years old next Thursday. Um, September is a, is a really tough month for me. I will tell you that um, when I first got sober, I used to go to my home group like the first four months, and like every day longer that I was sober, the more I would hurt for that. Um, and 
and I would share it because I so desperately wanted to stay sober. So they would say, is anybody struggling? And I, and I would be like, yes, yes, I'm struggling, and I don't know what to do. And the longer I'm sober, the more pain I'm in. And, you know, I just, I just want to stay sober. And um, I love this program because after, after one of those meetings, one of my home group members came up to me, and he said, I, you know, I have some advice um, if you're if you're interested in it. He said, I work with kids that are adopted, and and I said, absolutely. What is your suggestion? And he said, I, well, I, you know what, um, you can't you can't see you can't see her, and what you can do is you can get a journal and you can start journaling right now, and you can write her a letter when you're in a good place and you don't think you're going to relapse. You know, you could pull it out and you could think about it and you could write her a letter and then you could put it away and you can have an action. I was like, wow, that was profound to me. So I did that. And, uh, and I have another child I gave up for adoption, uh, after I got out of prison because I couldn't take care of him. So they each have a journal and I write to them. And when I opened the journals the other day, cause it's September and September is very painful for me, uh, I pulled them out and I looked and there was just like, you know, it's, it's getting full, you know, and someday I can, instead of saying, I, I thought about you all the time, I'm your mother, I really loved you, I was just sick, instead of saying that, I can say, I loved you so much, and they can, I can hand that to them, and they have evidence, right, because they can see by my actions, you know, I'm 20 days sober today, and it's killing me, I wonder what you look like, you know, I wonder if you're safe. And it just felt good because it finally was an action that I could do something and, and, and just kind of move forward. So that's really helped me a lot. And, uh, I shared that with my mother last week because she's, she's hurting, you know, and, uh, she was worried about me. She called me and she said, I'm worried about you. And I said, why are you worried about me? She said, I know it's your son's birthday today and Danny Victoria's is the 26th and I'm worried about you. I said, mom, don't be worried about me. You know, and I was able to share that with her, and she can't stand AA. She can't stand that I'm in AA. But she said, that was the best advice I've ever heard. Are you kidding me? I said, Mom, you have no idea what I learned there. I love it. So let me tell you uh, some of the things that have happened. Um, when I got, I did go to prison. Um, I didn't fight the charge. I pled guilty because I had a private attorney, Richard Escobar. I was the first murder case Richard Escobar ever defended. And what happens when you have a private attorney, my parents, God bless them, they took out a loan on our farm to get this attorney. And he was awesome. But the only thing is every time we went to court, he would say, let's delay it, and the judge would go along with it. So the longer and longer and longer I'm away from my children, the more pain I'm in. So I went against my attorney's advice, and I pled guilty to third-degree murder. Um, and the only person that heard the, the details of my case was the judge, Judge William Fuentes, and he heard all the facts of my case and all of everything that went on, and it was a Friday, and he looked at me. Now, I'd been free for about a year and a half out on a bond. It's an unbondable charge. There you go, private attorney. He says to me, he said, Janine, this is really serious. The judge said this. I would like to take a week to decide your sentence. And I'm like, okay. You know, I've been free for a while. I'm not dying to go, you know. <laughs> I'm okay. So he wrote me a letter, um, and uh Basically, what the letter said is, I not only believe that your husband, Danny, was a participant, I believe he caused his own death, but you have pled guilty to third-degree murder, and I have to sentence you accordingly. Um, my, my attorney promised my parents I would never go to prison. They believed that. And uh, when I got that letter from that judge, I knew I was going to prison, and I was okay. I was okay with that. 
Um, I still, I mean, it's, it's always going to follow me around. Um, I'll never forget the day the FBI came to the prison and, and uh, told me I could voluntarily or they could force me to take my DNA, and they will always keep my DNA. I am a convicted murderer. It is what it is. Um, I wanted to be with my children, and I, I just felt like if I could get that sentence behind me, then maybe someday, somehow, I could be with my kids. So I got out of prison. I did not pick up a drink or a drug. Um, I did, uh, I tried some other things, one of them being uh, church. Um, yeah, church. Yep, I did. I went to church. Eventually, I got those kids back. And when I got those kids back, I had another baby. That's the other one I'm not with. And when I, when I was three months, after he was three months old and I'm breastfeeding, I thought, I didn't use that whole nine months and I didn't use that three months that I was breastfeeding, I'm probably not that bad. It's just probably not as bad. You know, my disease started telling me that. And, of course, I wasn't going to meetings, so I started listening to my disease. And I had never been exposed to A. I've tried other A's. Um, I have not had any uh, quality experience I can share with you about that. I will tell you that Alcoholics Anonymous is the only solution that has worked for me. I have tried everything. There is not much that I have not tried. I've tried doctors, therapists. I had five doctors tell me that I'm bipolar and I have severe anxiety disorder. And people from my home group know that is not true. I am the same way every single day. I'll never forget um, one, a guy in our home group, uh, one of Peter's sponsees, asked me one time if he could go. I got involved in H&I at three months sober. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love going into lockdown facilities and sharing a message that was brought to me in those facilities. Um, so this guy kind of tagged along with me, and um, and we sat right there, and I kind of went through the whole story, only I went into a lot more detail because I'd rather talk to you guys about what has happened in my life today, uh, which is really profound. So he goes with me, and after he hears all of this in a lot more details, and uh, he looks at me afterwards, and he said, can I talk to you after we leave? And I said, yeah. So we go outside, and he, he's just shaking his head. He goes, Janine, I see you every day. Like, I see you every day. And every time I see you, you're so excited, and you're so happy. Even when things are bad, you're just so excited. He goes, how is it that you went through all of that, and you are the way you are today? Nobody had ever asked me that. And I really had to think about it. And I said, it is because of all of that that I went through, that I am the way that I am today, because of it. You know, I can't tell you that God has restored me to the person that I used to be, because he hasn't. God has transformed my life into somebody I never knew existed. I believe that when you have felt pain, and everybody's pain is just as real. You don't have to have some, I feel people's pain when I hear them share. You know, and I relate to that. And it's always, i got to keep it fresh. You know, I gotta, I've got to keep it fresh. Um, I can relate to that pain. I know what it took for me. You know, I, I have that gift of desperation. I didn't used to share this, but I'm going to share this tonight. Um, I've been sharing this since March 3rd, and it's worked well for me, as I'll tell you in a minute. My bottom. Um, my daughter is the most important person in my world. So I came into AA September 18th of 2010. I'll never forget that I, unfortunately, uh, tattooed it on my back. And <laughs> I really did. I really did. So, uh, yeah, and my sponsor goes, what were you thinking? And I go, well, it's no big deal. She goes, you know, what about the no big decisions your first year? I go, no, it was only like $200. You know what I mean? I didn't get what she was saying. So then I was, and I was drunk a week later. But anyway, so I know I'll never forget. That was my first AA meeting. 
And I'm okay with that. I'll never change that date. I'm good with that. So I'd been trying. I was regularly, I was a home group member. I was, uh, I was going to AA meetings for 10 months. And in that 10 months, I picked up 14 white chips. And that doesn't have to be your story. But it was my story. That's what I went through. That I didn't get step one. It was a step one problem every single time. I felt like I was powerful. My life was clearly unmanageable. But I believed I just had to find the right combination, you know. I just, if I kept trying, so I would have one more trial and one more failure. And every single time it got worse and it got worse and it got worse. And I had people in my hunger that would tell me, sorry, don't stop trying. You're going to get it. Keep coming back. It's going to happen for you. I did not believe it anymore. But I believed that person believed it. I could see that he believed it. So my bottom was I was a couple of months sober, trying very hard, going to meetings every day, and uh, my daughter is the most important person in my world, and I took her to a doctor's appointment. She was pregnant with my grandson. I took her to the appointment. She wasn't due yet. She gets on the machine. All the bells and whistles go off. Next thing I know, they're transporting her by car. They wouldn't let me ride the ambulance, and I thought, Okay, I'm just going to follow. Now, at this point, I know I've got a problem with drugs, for sure, right? I'm going to AA, but I don't think, not sure that I'm an alcoholic. So I swung by the liquor store, right, so just to try, you know. i got to see, i gotta prove, I got to know for sure. If I'm going to go all in, because that's what I do. I don't do anything half-assed, nothing in my life. I'm all in. If I'm going to do something, I'm all in. So I stop at the liquor store, I get a fifth. Drinking it on the way to the hospital, get there. I'm feeling better. My daughter's feeling better. Everything's better. I said, I'll be right back. I go back to the liquor store. I remember buying the fifth. That's the last thing I remember. I came to five days later in a crack house. And what? And the first memory I have is a text with a picture of my grandson. No anger. No guilt trip. Mom just wanted you to know that your grandson was born today. His name's Jaleel Xavier. And I love you, Mom. I hope you're okay. I hit my knees in that crack house, and I truly wanted to die. Really, in my whole being, I wanted to die. I have often thought that I regret that. I regret that. I can never take it back. And um, I thought that I would never be able to get sober because of that. But on some days when I'm in a really good place, I'm grateful that it happened because that is what it took for me. That's what it took. My grandson's almost two years old. We're both going to be two. <laughs> and... Uh, I know I've heard my daughter tell people that, mom, that you know, my mom got sober for my baby, my grand, you know, her grandson, and it's so not true. That is so not true. I got sober so I don't ever have to miss one more moment of her life. I don't want to be absent ever again. I promise you this. When I was out there using drugs and alcohol, I loved my children with all my heart. I don't love them anymore today than I did when I was out there. I can promise you that. I could pass a lie detector test. It is the God's honest truth. But you couldn't convict me of it. 
if you tried to put me on trial and convict me of being a loving mother, you couldn't prove it. There was no evidence, none. Today, I don't have to tell my kids that I love them. They know that I love them. Because today, I live my life on actions. I love when my daughter will, I'll do something with surprising her and she won't be expecting it. And she'll text me and she'll say, Mommy, you didn't have to do that. Thank you. And I I really get excited because I get to text her and say, I know I didn't have to do that. I get to do that today. I get to be your mother today. What a gift. What a gift. And I'm telling you, when I came in, when I get, when I picked up that last white chip, I was broken. I was so hurting. There's a couple people here tonight that were there at that meeting. I was willing to do whatever it took. Whatever I had to do. I didn't care who suggested it. It didn't have to be my sponsor. If you were somebody and I saw that you were, you were sober and you had, and you were, had peace and you made a suggestion to me, I was certain to take it. I took all kinds of suggestions. I remember sitting at a women's meeting and this woman said, depression can't hit a moving target, right? Boom. I took that home with me. That was on a Friday. On Monday, I joined the gym. The first 52 weeks I was sober, I was addicted to fitness, y'all. You guys remember? I'm doing body combat out in the parking lot. I, I, I did. I leveled Peter a couple times. You know, I was serious. I'm a good alcoholic. I don't do anything a little bit. I just don't, you know, but I can use that for positive. I can use that for positive. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> On March 3rd, um, well, actually, I'll back up a little bit. At the end of February, I got a phone call from a guy. Um, I think I was four months sober the first time I was asked to speak anywhere. So, And anything I do, especially, I will tell you the thing that I live for today, and if you haven't done it, I would really encourage you to do so, would be getting involved in TBAIC. Um, I am on the committee. It's a huge part of, I don't, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Let me tell you what. I get so intoxicated in that one hour. I mean, it's a quick rush, and it lasts all day. It's the no-consequence buzz, okay? And once you you take me in there one time at three months over, I went to a detox, shared my story, left there, I was flying. I was like, I mean, I just felt closer to God than I'd ever felt in my life. So what do I do? I go as often as I can, you know? (laughs) Started doing it all the time. If you start showing up at TBAIC, they will put you to work. I I promise you that. It only meets one Saturday a month. Um, let me go back to the story. So March 3rd, I was asked to speak at Drew Park, the acts in Drew Park. So I'd spoken there one time before. The guy called me last minute. He said, we already have a speaker lined up, and I know it's last minute, but we have some women that just came in, and they're on the fence, Janine, and I've heard your story, and I really, I said, tell me when, and I'll be there. So I did. I went that night, and it was the first night I shared that part about my daughter, my bottom. Un- unfortunately, I was ashamed of that for the first 16 months I was sober. I was about 16 months sober. I go in there, and I shared pretty much the way I did tonight after the meeting. We circle up. We do the Lord's Prayer, and as soon as we pull apart from the, Lord, the Lord's Prayer, uh, this man approaches me. I'd never seen him before in my life, and he handed me a business card. He looked very serious. He said, Janine, I don't know what you're doing for work, but you have got to come work for me. 
I'm going to tell you my first thought, and I hope that none of you know him because he is in Tampa right now. But I thought, Creeper! I mean, honestly, I'm thinking, this guy gave me his business card, and it said addiction specialist. I'm like, Creeper! You know? I didn't think anything of it! I don't even know if if I was probably, I probably wouldn't even, who knows? I don't know what would have happened, but I know what did happen. I went home that night. I leave the card out. I told my boyfriend David about it. Um, He's much more worldly than I am. I didn't even think to do it. I don't even know how to do the background check. So he's in the other room looking this guy up, seeing who he is, right? He's all serious. Who's this man offering my woman a job? So I'm in the other room in the kitchen, right? And I hear this, ooh, ding, whoa. And I'm like, honey, it sounds like bad porn. What's going on? Right? And he said, you're not going to believe this, right? You are not going to believe it if I tell you. And I'm like, okay, try me. He said, this guy owns, he's the co-founder and owner of one of the 11th treatment facility in the nation right now. Like, you're kidding me. He's like, no, I'm serious. So, of course, I did answer the guy's phone call. I met, met with him the next day. They flew the clinical director down there uh, in Tampa. I met them at the property. I was able to see what they were doing down there. It was pretty awesome. And um, I had a three-and-a-half-hour interview in which I not... I don't think I spoke five words. He didn't let me talk. He was telling me why I had to come work for him. Now, let me tell you what. Okay. Any, if I had tried to get that job, I could have had a crowbar and a dump truck, and, and it wouldn't have done anything. There's no way I could have gotten that job, right? And uh, he's told me he's never, he had never been to that meeting before, and he's never been to that meeting ever since then. I wasn't even supposed to be speaking there tonight. You tell me that's a coincidence. You tell me that's a coincidence. And the very thing that kept me from ever getting any kind of a normal job or some type of anything that I could do, even I volunteered at USF for five months and they still got rid of me when they ran my fingerprints and saw that I went to prison for murder. Are you kidding me? This guy is dying for me to come work for him. Because he went to jail for murder many years ago. He was arrested for murder. And he didn't do it. And he said, I, I, I've been in sober for almost 16 years, and they always say, if you keep one of me, you'll hear your story. I've never even heard my story, but tonight I did. Never thought I'd be a woman telling my story. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I mean, this, this guy's crazy. He's awesome. When I tell you he's awesome, he's awesome. Let me tell you. So uh, that was March 3rd. On March 10th, I'm flying to Florida, South Carolina. I'm like, is this really going on? I have to keep praying because I keep thinking to myself, at any moment, you know, right? You know, because this, this kind of stuff doesn't happen to people like me, right? I mean, I mean, honestly, let's be logical here. This kind of stuff doesn't happen to people like me. I get up there. Um, that place has been open for 12 years. There's about 35 employees. Every single employee that works there, including the clinical director, are all alumni. Every one of them went through that program. I am the first and only outsider they have ever hired. You can't, you can't make up stuff like this. You know what I'm saying? So I get there, and I don't even know what, what, what my job's going to be. He told me the title, um, but I didn't know what my job was going to be. I knew it was going to be working here at the Owl's Nest in Tampa, and it's going to be a women's rehab. I'm all about that. We don't have enough treatment in Tampa for women. We just don't have it, especially for people like me without insurance or money. So I'm all about that. Well, when I get up there, I guess what? I find out a whole bunch more. I find out they don't care if you if you came up there for a problem with alcohol or you came up there because you did too much meth or you had a heroin problem. They only teach one thing at that whole place. Now, I didn't know. I shared that night about what I know. 
I know about this. I know about this program that's outlined in this book that has changed my life and many others. So I get up there and I find out there's only one textbook in the whole place. And it's this. And guess what my job is? My job is to teach people the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Now, I'm going to guess, you know, I can't, I'm not going to actually ask him, but I'm guessing that one of the reasons why he picked me was because they want to make, they want to bring the big book to life. You know, they want to get people excited about being sober. And for whatever reason, he thought that I was a pretty excited person, you know. And I'm guessing, now that could not, maybe that's not why I got hired for that job, but let me tell you what. What an amazing job. Doing exactly what you love. And, to, and, and the thing that saved your life is the only solution there. And every single person that works there is in recovery. There's no, we don't care if you have a doctorate or a master's, they won't hire you if you're not in recovery. Are you kidding me? You can't make this stuff up. It's crazy. I go up there for four and a half months. I'm chasing my dream. I didn't imagine the things, the other things. I didn't, rem- I didn't imagine the downside of people dying. Getting too invested. I had a couple of reviews, and all of them sounded basically the same. Um, you're, you're too close to the residents. You're too invested. Those types of things, and they're things that I'm going to be working on. And, um, you know, I got back to Tampa, and I was just like, I mean, just what an amazing, amazing thing. Um, and I tell you, I, I, when we see people that come in here, and they, and they take those steps, right, and um, for myself, nothing got better in my life till I took the steps. And my sponsor took me through the steps as fast as I wanted to, which was very quickly. Because I, when you take alcohol and drugs away from me without a solution, I get worse. I don't get better. I don't get better. So I had to take those steps. And I didn't believe. I'm going to tell you this for those of you who haven't done all these 12 steps. I did not believe, I promise you, I did not believe it would work for me. Okay? But I did it anyway because I was desperate. And the only thing I really did, I was honest and I was willing. I must have been open-minded because I did the suggestions. But that's it. I didn't believe it would work for me. I can't tell you the exact day, but right after I made my second amends, on step nine, the obsession was removed from me in such a profound way. Profound way. And as soon as I did that second amends, my sponsor looked at me and said, now it's time for you to start sponsoring other people. Are you kidding me? There's no way. (laughs) Who would want me for a sponsor? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) You know, so I was like seven weeks sober, and I go to a detox at a hospital, and I pick up, you know, I, this, I get, I've given my phone number out lots of times, but this person actually called me. And I'm still sponsoring her today. And I love, we heard a speaker at Fall Roundup said, don't confuse activity with action. Okay? Because you know what? We can look busy. We can do all this. We can clean up and we can make coffee and we can do all that. But are you sponsoring? Are you taking somebody through the steps? Are you teaching them the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that saved your life? The way it's outlined in this book? My sponsor's favorite page, page 44, to be doomed to an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis are not always easy alternatives. Whoa, that is so true. 
That is so true. It's not an easy choice to make. <laughs> like, we have a choice, you know? It's just not an easy decision. And I will tell you my favorite page in the big book, if I had to have a favorite, and I love all of this book, would be page 152, The Vision for You. Yes, there is a, salute, a substitute, and it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. What an amazing life. You know, I've gone through some great things in sobriety, and I've had to go through I've had to make really painful decisions, but I was never, ever alone. I have never been alone in this program. And there's a good and bad about that. When you get really connected with people in your network, when something great happens for somebody in your network, it's as if it happened to you. You get to share in that victory. It's so exciting. It's like it happened to you. And the downside of that is when somebody in your network goes through something painful and tragic, it's as if it happened to you. We are never alone. I have not had to do anything since the moment I picked up that white chip. I have not been alone. I am home right now with my family, the people that I am so connected to. I love each and every one of you. Thanks for letting me share. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.